This week on Writers Inc. I think I needed to do it to get out of my system, but um, yeah, it was painful. But I, I set that aside, and then and then I, I thought, you know, what if I'm not going to be writing about humanity and, and what we do to ourselves with this science? Um, I think I'm missing the boat, so I bit the bullet and set it aside. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and indie powerhouses Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's Inc. All right. Uh, Zach, I'm noticing your t-shirts. Let's just go ahead and spoil season four of Stranger Things for everyone. What happened? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to spoil it, but I will say that, um, and me and you kind of texted about, JD, have you watched it? We're on episode four, so shut the F up. (laughs) (laughs) No, we're not going to, I'm not going to spoil it because we're not going to do that, but like, I'll just say that the last episode is probably like one of my favorite episodes of television ever. Like it's just done. It was done really, really well. So, and has probably my favorite scene ever in a TV show <laughs> that Jay and I have already texted about. So I, I will say JD, when you get to this, I, I, I might like to revisit this maybe on next week's episode because the, the pacing, the, that's, I was going to say the pacing is yeah. I th- I just think it's brilliant, and, I, and I, especially for someone who writes, you know, suspenseful thrillers, action-packed things. Like, I'd love to get your thoughts on it. So, when you get to that point, I think we should we should talk about it on the show. Well, they had uh, like a mid-season like cliffhanger or something too, right? Because like I'm watching it, and all the episodes are out there at this point. Yeah. But, like, didn't they put like ha- where, where was that at the end of which episode? I was think that? this is uh, the final episode, is right, Zach, or was it the one next to last? Well, we're are you asking where the mid-season is? Or are you? Asking yeah, because I, I the way I understand it, they took like a break, like a couple months in between, and then released like. The, isn't there the last seven night. episodes and then three? There's is that two. How it went, There's only it... two. The last two were the last two released. Yeah. Okay. Chapters yeah. eight okay. and nine, I think they are, and I think the I think Zach and I are talking about the, the chapter nine episode, the last one. I think, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's really yeah, long. Whatever it's like the last, almost, it's like an hour and a half or something. Like the whole. Yeah, it's like a movie. Yeah, but yeah, Jay's the pacing is like, like, uh, unreal. Like I was like gripping the couch and like <laughs> couldn't. I mean, it was it was in, it was intense. Yeah. Well, it, it kind of leads into one of the comments that I wrote down. The Duffer Brothers have a masterclass now. Yes. Have, have you guys seen oh, that? Oh, that's yeah. cool. I, didn't see yeah, I, 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 I haven't watched it yet, but I'm definitely going to take it in. I, I'm kind of on the fence about that because one of the you know like cardinal rules, like when I'm writing a book, is I try to make the reader forget that they're reading a book and just kind of get lost in the story. And I feel like when you're watching TV or when you're watching a movie, the same sort of thing should happen. Like you know, you mm. completely forget that the camera is even there, and you just kind of get lost in the characters and what's going on. Um, I have a real hard time watching michael bay movies you know mainly because he does these crazy camera tricks and you know like it uses all kinds of filters and colors and just a lot of fast action cuts that you know like the camera is just always present like you know that the you know like it to me it takes you out of the story you know you're watching the movie or you're watching the show and you know like you get sidetracked because oh that was a cool camera shot and like you really shouldn't think that you know it's, it's awesome that he can do it but you shouldn't um and I, i've been getting that vibe off this season of stranger things you know like there's a lot going on there you know where they're just 
really kind of showing off with the camera a little bit. The sound effects are a little more pronounced than they need to be. Um, you know, so to me, it's distracting from the the actual story, which which is mm. solid. Like it doesn't need any of that. Um, but if you go back and watch the first season and compare the two, you're going to see a big difference. Well, they got to spend that thirty three million dollars uh, budget for every episode <laughs> some way. <laughs> And, and I'll say too, like I was very mixed after the third season because I thought that the end of the third season, they could have just wrapped the whole show then. I thought that that was, and I felt like the show was getting repetitive. And then like I found out afterwards and Jay and I've talked about this, that they had a five season arc from the beginning. So like it makes sense. But the fourth season, I mean, uh, like I was very apprehensive going in, but they've made it different enough to where I'm like, it might be my favorite season. Like season one probably still is, but this one is really, really close. I'll well, be interested to see what these guys do next too. That's what I'm really curious about. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the, the story arcs are, are great. You know, the fact that they're carrying these kids over, you know, it's, it's very difficult when you start any kind of show with young kids um, and they, they basically yeah. become adults in front of you. It's, it's yeah. very difficult to get the audience to make that transition because, you know, you, you turn, tuned in originally because they were young kids, but they're, they're pulling it along, which is, is awesome. Um, I'm, I'm going to check out the, the master class because I'm, I'm really curious about that. I, I love analyzing these kind of shows and, um, you know, just this, this one definitely has a different vibe to it. It definitely feels a little bit darker feels like it's geared a little bit towards an older crowd. Um, and, and I think what they're really doing is kind of aging the storyline, not only with the kids, but with the, the viewers, you know, like they, they want to drag in the older viewers, whereas, you know, because the, the viewers have grown up watching this show too. Um, you know, it, one of the things you have to remember is like Netflix was still kind of in its infancy, you know, when the first season of Stranger Things came out, you know, in a lot of ways, Stranger Things has really carried Netflix and brought them into this entire streaming, yeah. streaming world. So they, you know, there, there's a lot of, a lot of different things going on there. Was it 2016? I, I will say my, go ahead. Was it 2016 when the first season came out? Was I it, I think so. Or 2018? I don't know it's been it's it been is. years though, right? I mean, so yeah, you we kind of forget. It, it seems like a new show, but it's really not a new show. Yeah, I mean, up up until that point, you know, Netflix was around and they had streaming shows on, and you know, you could you could get it, but like you know, for the most part, they had one or two good movies, and you know, very little really worth watching. You know, it was it, it was it was binge TV for sure, same as it is now. Um, but it was something you kind of tuned to when you couldn't find anything else. And Stranger Things kind of flipped that that on its head where, you know, it became, you know, like the go-to, you know, people were tuning in just to watch Stranger Things. Dude, I'd love to see their subscription numbers from, you know, when that first came out, you know, what, what it did for the, the network. I, I will say, I want my one gripe about the show, and it's always been minor, but it's more pronounced now after seeing another show, is it always felt like the intro is different than the rest of the show. Like the intro looks very 80s, but the show is filmed like a modern film other than the fact there's 80s stuff in the background. But after seeing Winning Time on HBO Max, which actually is filmed with like a grainy filter like in the late 70s, early 80s, I totally wish they had done that with this show and given it like a grainy VHS look. Well, like, I, vag I vaguely remember season one being like that, right? Like a I, I don't think it felt as modern. Not in the way I'm talking about. Like okay. Jay, Jay's seen Winning Time on HBO Max, and it's it, it's about the that set late '70s, early '80s Los Angeles Lakers. It's a hilarious show, but it's filmed with like it looks like it was filmed back in that time. Like it's, and I wish they'd done that with this. Even but, the I mean, aspect ratio of the screen is like three four yeah. as opposed to widescreen. You know, yeah, it's yeah. it's definitely got sort of that authentic look to it. 
I'll have to check it out. I, I'm 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 dying for for things to watch right now. So I'm I'm watching Stranger Things with my wife, but like I usually spend about an hour in the theater just watching something on my own, you know, before she settles in. Um, and last night I watched um, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Um, I, I I couldn't tell you what it was about. I, I literally <laughs> couldn't. Um, I mean, it was fantastic to watch, but like I really didn't need sound. You know, it was like visually it was a stunning show, but you know, like the storyline to me, like it made zero impact. It just kind of felt like they were phoning something in just to get, you know, a product out there with that particular character. And um, I'm sure it made a gazillion dollars, um, but I, I just, I honestly don't get it. I don't know if people are you know tuning in because it's just the latest Marvel movie and they've seen all the other ones and they just want to make sure they can tick off that box. Um, or are there really fans out there that were lining up that wanted to, to see this? I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but I need some suggestions, I guess, is the moral of the story. So just, just start, start emailing me, you know, hit us up on the, the website or whatever. But anything worth watching right now, I, I need a new show. Awesome. Hey, I'm, I'm going to give a quick shout out that uh, if you're listening in real time, it's Monday, July 11th, and the Carbon Almanac drops tomorrow, uh, July 12th. So um, get on over to Amazon, grab a copy. Really excited about it. Uh, it's been few months in the making and uh the promotion machine is revved up and ready to go so uh be, be watching the charts over the next couple of weeks oh i will be <laughs> happy birthday to my daughter haley oh happy birthday haley who is eight years old today on july 11th oh which is in birthday. the future as we record <laughs> she's probably downstairs right now being like why is daddy up there saying happy birthday <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't be the first person to get a birthday wrong on the podcast <laughs> <laughs> we better not go there i got in trouble last time yeah we should be careful <laughs> any, any other updates writing projects you well, guys want to talk about i i wanted to i wanted to ask you guys something i, I wanted to kind of play something out with you guys if we have a moment to do that we have a moment gonna, this episode i think we'll I, th I, think be, I think people i think i think authors will enjoy this all right so today as we record i got accepted for an international book bub deal on a box set and i've this has happened before they they've, they've accepted it like three or four other times and i've always declined it because the sales, the U.S. sales that the price I had at were too good to justify bringing everything else down. When you say international, you mean, but not in the U.S. They did not select the okay. U.S. It, correct. Yeah. So it, it got accepted for like India, U.K., Australia, um, maybe like one other country, but Canada, but not the U.S. So I always decline it because I'm like, well, I'm not going to bring because, you, you know, you have to on Amazon, you have to bring down to 35 percent. Like I could leave the price full, but it would be at 35%. And there's almost no point in bringing it down. But that's kind of my question. So the sales on that box set are, have dipped a little bit enough to where I was like, okay, I'm just going to accept it this time and, and, and roll with it. But I'm going to do a shorter discount than I normally do. So normally I'll do like a week or sometimes even two, but this time I'm only going to do three days. Um, but my question I was going to ask you guys is, would y'all leave the box set in the U.S. at its current price it's at and only get 35%? Or would y'all drop it down to 99 cents for those three days with everything else and just try to get the sales rank up a little bit but make a little bit less money? Um, so I, I've got a lot of different publishers involved in my book. So it's, I, I usually end up turning down the international um, deals when I get them. Yeah. Um, but what I, I, I do see a lot of times, you know, I, I, because I have so many different publishers involved, they're all off doing their own thing. So a lot of them will run sales in foreign countries. And I don't even know that it's on sale until somebody you know puts a tweet out there or, or mentions it to me. Um, and I do see those foreign deals 
the the sales, you know, pumping up um, the sales in the countries where it's not um, marked out. Um, and I, I think it's just because it gets hyped up on Goodreads and some of the, you know, Facebook and some mm. of the sites that are more international. Um, so, yeah, I think it's worthwhile to do that. Like, I, I definitely wouldn't discount the U.S. just because it's discounted everywhere else. Um, it could, you know, for the most part, it's, it's just it's not worthwhile. But, I mean, you, you might see a little bit of a trail, you know, in the U.S. people discovering it just because of what's happening on the other side. I wonder, though, with your publishers, like it probably doesn't cut into your royalties because like I have to take it down to 35 percent even in the U.S. So I am going to oh. make less. That's the thing. It's it's an overall thing in, K in the KDP dashboard. Yeah. From my standpoint, it doesn't impact any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. So that's that's a whole different ball. That, game. So that's a very I'll still if I kept it at the regular price, I would still make more than I would if I took it all the way down to 99 cents or even like a dollar ninety nine. But I'm, you know, but I don't know. What's like, the full? I, I just, what's the regular price on it? It's four ninety nine. So it's not a huge difference. I, I think one of the things that I, I see happening, um, and this is probably credited to Goodreads. You know, people can shelve books that they want to read on Goodreads. They can mark them as to be read or something they want to read down the road. Um, and because Amazon owns Goodreads, they'll target those people. So if they see the book on sale somewhere, they'll shoot an email out to that group mm. and, and say, you know, a title that's on your shelf is currently on sale. Um, I don't think they necessarily get the country right every single time when they do that. Um, you know, so it could be on sale in this particular language, but they send the email out anyway to somebody who's living somewhere else. And I think it kind of tips them off. It kind of reminds them that the, the title is out there. Um, the other thing that I notice is a lot of times when I have a BookBub deal, I get, you know, I, a lot of sales during that, you know, that time frame when it's off, but then it, it trickles down like a week or two after um, I see very little sales. Like it, it basically tapers off for a little while. And I think it's the same reason, like people are avid shelved. They get, you know, they get notified that it's on sale. They buy it at the sale price. Um, you know, they're just basically sitting there waiting for it to be on sale to buy it. Um, and it, it seems to hurt the normal sales on the, the back end. Um, I've been shying away from a lot of the BookBub things lately just because they, yeah. they just haven't impacted the way that they used to. I mean, I, I certainly don't have much um, data to support this, but my gut says if you're only doing it for three days, I'd put it at 99 cents because it's only yeah. for three days. And then you avoid confusion or people who think it's on sale and that they're not in the right country. And then it's, you know, like I, I would just keep it consistent if it's only three days. You know, it, the, the worst thing that would happen is you, you'll get a nice little bump in the algorithm if you move some at 99 cents yeah and i'm, I'm curious about that too because i've never done one this short where i where i have this price go back up so quick and bookbub actually tells you to do five days or fewer so I'm, i'll be really curious to see what it does if i once i go back to full price at a you know quicker than i normally do that it'll be interesting to see so cool thanks for y'all's input report back let us know how it goes we'll yeah. do yeah right. nice Hey, want to give a uh, shout out to our wonderful friends over there at Kobo Writing Life. They empower you, the author, to take your self-publishing career into your own hands. If you are publishing wide, you've got to go through Kobo Writing Life. They have all kind of amazing opportunities for you, promotional opportunities. Uh, you set your price, keep all your rights, and all of that with no exclusivity. So there's a link in the show notes, or you can hit, hit it directly at KoboWritingLife.com. Uh I normally would say, JD, who's the guest today? I got to throw an asterisk on this. So do you want me to do that first or do you want to introduce the guest first? <laughs> Go ahead and put the asterisk out there. Okay. Here's the asterisk. I thought JD Parker had more pull in this world, but. Uh, JD Parker? JD Parker. Who's Parker? <laughs> Did I say Parker? You said Parker. All right. I thought JD Parker had more pull in this world. Uh, I was uh, politely asked by the uh, publicist 
um, to keep the interview within a certain time frame. So if you're wondering why this interview feels shorter than all the rest, that's why. It's not uh, because I didn't enjoy talking to Blake. Oh, did did you drop my name? <laughs> I Clear, think clearly, I you did to. it all wrong. I mean, I didn't think I had to. I thought they'd be like, "Oh, this is a JD Barker production. Uh, let's give this guy all the time he wants." Yeah, no, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> um, so, those of you trying to figure out what it is we're, we're talking about, we've got Blake Crouch coming back. Um, Blake is the New York Times bestseller of multiple novels, including the Wayward Pines trilogy, uh, which was adapted by Fox um, and was on television a couple years back. His latest is called Upgrade, which releases July twelfth. Uh, fascinating guy. Here he is, Blake Crouch. So Blake, last time we talked, you said um, you were only tackling big ideas from now on, and uh, upgrade, man, that's a big idea. Tell us about tell us about it. Well, it's uh, an, a book I've had wanted to write basically ever since I had finished Dark Matter, because um, I think there's nothing bigger, more interesting than uh, playing around with the source code of all life, including including ours. Um, but I was pretty intimidated by the research, uh, as it turns out, as I wrote the book, rightly so, because it was the most research intensive thing I've ever done. And that, and which is saying something because both recursion and dark matter had their fair share of, uh, research required, but nothing I'd ever tackled like this. Wow. So what, uh, what did that look like? I mean, for you, uh, intense research, what's that paint the picture for us? Well, I, uh, it, it, for me, it meant, so I started off and, 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 you know, doing my thing, looking at CRISPR at all the, you know, kind of current gene modifiers and trying to get up to speed on, uh, you know, the biology of genetics. But I realized pretty quickly that that was not going to cut it this time. I, I needed an actual professional to help me. So I reached out to the uh, Science and Entertainment Exchange which is this organization based in LA that helps uh, pair creators with subject matter experts. They have a passion for making sure science is um, well represented in the arts. And, and they put me in touch with Michael Wiles, who is a molecular geneticist at the time working at the Jackson Laboratories in Bar Harbor, Maine. And Michael, I've never had a subject matter expert goes so far above and beyond. I've had amazing luck in the past, like with uh, Clifford Johnson uh, helping me with dark matter and recursion, but Michael redlined two drafts of this book. I, I, I basically put everything on the page I wanted to have happen. And we talk and Michael would say, oh, this works, but this doesn't, but I'll show you how this can work and sent me just volumes of notes and suggestions and ideas. Um, and I really would not have been able to write this book without that level of, of support. The science was just so incomprehensible. Wow. <laughs> That's saying a lot. Uh, I mean, I, I love your work because it's always so layered and, and this book delivers the same way. I mean, you, you have this sort of highly technical premise, but then there's a lot of humanity that's, that's baked in here. A lot of sort of existential questions. Uh, one, one of the passages I highlighted I want to ask you about was this. Uh, we don't have an intelligence problem. We have a compassion problem. That more than any other single factor is what's driving us toward extinction. Mm. Love that. Um, Thank you. Can you talk a little bit about sort of, um, it's, I, won't, I don't want to call it a theme, but it's certainly an element within this story that, that is prominent. 
Yeah. Um, I think a lot of this, I mean, this book is really about, um, it's kind of a love letter and a hate letter to our species. Mm. You know, we're having a rough time right now. <laughs> it's like we've taken many, many, many steps back um, over the last, I don't know, six or seven years. And I think going into this book, I wanted to write also about my feelings about where we're going and all the mistakes we're making. And initially there was just a lot of like anger and like rage on the page at our species. I mean, the wars, what we're doing to our planet, what we're doing to ourselves, so we treat each other. And that where I arrived um, without getting too spoilery towards the end of the book was, was definitely not where I started. Um, I had a bunch of different endings in, <laughs> in mind and, and some of them were not so nice, but, uh, it, I, I think what happened is my better angels prevailed and I, and I, I just took a hard look at it. There's, it's really interesting. There's this, um, I discovered this concept called Dunbar's number, uh, this anthropologist, theorized that our species because of how we evolved and you know coming up in small sort of hunter-gatherer bands really is only programmed to care about 150 people that's that's like it's not that we're psychopaths necessarily it's just that was the size of our group when we were you know you know millions of years ago and we evolved to care about those you know, our small group that was important because in-group loyalty protected us from other groups, from raids and, and you know, helped us to, you know, help these groups to survive. Um, but with the information age, we are globally interconnected and to only be able to care about 150 people means that, you know, we don't care what's happening in Ukraine. We don't care what's happening in Africa. These things are just so baked into who we are. Um, and I don't know. I, I just wonder if part of our problem isn't that just isn't just that you know we're a selfish species. It's just that we came up this way. And I started thinking about well, what do we what do we do about that? I mean, what what are some tacks we can take to maybe unravel that and that's where I landed at the uh, compassion. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I have these moments in in what we would consider to be sort of everyday life that I I think to myself, this isn't right. Like uh, like being in the air thirty thousand feet above the Earth, and and transferring from one point on the continent to another. I'm in flight, and I'm thinking this isn't right. Like there's something wrong about this. And and uh, so I love that that approach, and that like. Yeah, you know, we're not hardwired for this. Like, this is what we're experiencing now. It could take thousands of years for our reptilian brains to catch up. Mm -hmm. That's the, and it's the whole thing. It's like our, you know, we, I mean, I'm, you know, how quickly we get accustomed to, like, the suffering of others. Like, you know, when, for, let's just talk about, like, Ukraine, when that started happening, everyone was horrified. Oh, my God, we're, gonna, we're going into a World War Three. Putin is invading. All these people are dying. And I'm not saying it. We don't still care, but we get acclimatized to suffering and tragedy of, of people far away very quickly, too quickly. Uh, it, it becomes just another headline. And I don't think it's just that we are, I mean, maybe a part of it is, is apathy and we're just bombarded with bad news after bad news after bad news. That's probably part of it. 
but I really do think it is, it has something to do with the way our species evolved in those, in those early in groups. Yeah. Uh, because you mentioned it, I wanted to ask you about, I'd like to ask you when you first wrote this line, he'd fought in Ukraine, been wounded, came home to a denuded VA, paltry benefits, shit healthcare. Uh, clearly you had to have written that before the, the invasion of Ukraine started. I forgot. I, wait, will you say that line again? That's crazy. That's yeah, crazy. I, th- I think you were referring to Logie, Logan Ramsey. You said he'd fought in Ukraine, been wounded, came home to denuded VA, paltry benefits, shit healthcare. Um, oh, it's when he's looking at the, uh, when he's looking at this saxophone player, uh, yes. I think on the streets of uh, St. Louis, when yes. he's just coming to terms with his upgrade. I mean, I didn't <laughs> about that. I, I'm I'm trying to think the last time I touched the book. Uh, I yeah, that was that was before the invasion actually happened. I, I it had to have been. Right? That copy <laughs> edit came back in January, um, yeah. and that's the last time I uh, I touched the book. That's ooh, that's eerie. I know that's, that's why it jumped out at me. I mean, I I was reading the Net Galley, um, and I and this was way before <laughs> the invasion started. I know what what made me think that is I was going to go and do a. Uh, I was going to go and do uh, an event in, in Ukraine a few years ago. And I just, and I had been doing that the COVID basically shut it down. Um, but I remember getting ready to go and just looking at sort of the general safety of the country and some of those provinces, which they're now, you know, fighting about. Um, I, yeah, I, I was like, okay, you can go to Ukraine, but just maybe avoid those areas. And yeah. And so I was looking in the book, you know, the book is set, in the near future, you know, maybe 30, 40 years ahead. And I was trying to come up with some different events that, you know, I, I referenced a satellite war between uh, China and the U S and I think Ukraine just seemed like something that might happen. That's weird. Wow. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> yeah. That is crazy. Yeah. It definitely, definitely got my attention. Uh, what's Cause I turned this book in December 15th. Oh, okay. Year. There you go. So yeah, that, I, I didn't think it was something you just kind of slid in there at the last minute, mm-hmm. but, uh, no, I wouldn't have because I because I, I'm trying to set this thing in the future. Yeah, right, right. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not. I'm. I don't want present events really to be uh, playing into the mix. So, yeah, the future is here. Yeah, there you go. Uh, you said that you came to this after. Uh, was it after recursion or dark matter? Um, it was after recursion. Yeah, but I had the idea that I, well, I just conceptually wanted to write about genetic. I wanted to do a genetics thriller, okay. like a gene editing thriller. Um, after dark matter. And I, I was too intimidated by the science. And I also wasn't sure of the way in. I mean, I wrote an almost like a set, I wrote 70,000 words um, of uh, my first stab at this was not upgrade. It was 70,000 words of this other thing that took a completely different approach to gene editing. Um, and it was less about our, how we edit ourselves and, and, and sort of the, the subject matter of upgrade and, and, and more about other species and things like that. And anyway, like 70,000 words in, I just kind of realized I was meandering and I really didn't know still what the book was about. And it was sort of a kitchen sink approach to genetics, which is doing everything. And I think I needed to do it to get it out of my system, but um, yeah, it was painful, but I, I set that aside. And then, and then I, I thought, you know, what, if I'm not going to be writing about humanity and, and what we do to ourselves with this science, um, I think I'm missing the boat. So mm-hmm. I bit the bullet and set it aside. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. But it was after recursion. Okay. Okay. Um, 
I, you know, I also wanted to ask you, I don't know if I have my news, my news sources right, but are you going to be show running Dark Matter? That is the plan. Oh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, Dark Matter, I, I sold it to uh, Sony Pictures, to the feature side uh, back in 2014 when the book was still, it wasn't even finished yet. It was just a, a partial manuscript that the pages had leaked out. And we were getting a lot of interest and we thought, well, now's probably the time to sell it. I tried to write a movie of Dark Matter. A couple of other really good screenwriters came in and did passes and, and none of us could really crack it and wasn't sure exactly why. It just wasn't happening. Um, and I thought the project was dead, but then Sony Features graciously let us take it over to the TV side. Um, and when I started writing the pilot and the subsequent episodes, I just it suddenly all just clicked together. And I, part of it, I think, was just learned a lot of uh, painful lessons in trying to adapt it as a film, but also it just needed that space to breathe. And then, you know, we ended up selling it to Apple and brought Joel Edgerton on. And yeah, we're uh, hope, hopefully uh, we'll be starting to film uh, this summer in Chicago. Awesome. And this is your first time as a showrunner. Is that correct? Uh, you know, yeah. First time me on my own doing it, yes. Um, you know, I created a good behavior with my uh, writing partner, Chad Hodge, and, and was sort of right there with him as we were uh, making good behavior. But, you know, Chad was sort of my uh, my training wheels, so to speak. Um, and I, you know, I was not showrunning or, you know, really guiding the creative other than having written the books on Weird Pines, but I went to set and, and wrote episodes and sort of saw how the sausage gets made so I think it's been a pretty interesting progression from Weird Pines to Good Behavior to to now Dark Matter. <clears throat> uh, we'll it, see. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it appears as though it's something you enjoy. I mean, are you? Is this is this a challenge for I, you? Well, is I, this, uh... I mean, I I am just so passionate about Dark Matter. I I I see like I wouldn't do it with a book of mine that I, I didn't have just the clearest vision for. Um, yeah, there are parts of it I really enjoy. It also turns your life upside down. Uh, you end up having to put other things on hold. Uh, there's a lot involved with it that isn't just writing, which is sometimes fun, but sometimes frustrating. Um, I just, I, I love this story and I want to see it done the right way. And I maybe foolishly, but I, I think I know how to do it the right way. And I've had enough of my stuff wrecked by quote unquote, good Hollywood writers that I, I'm just, I'm not going to roll the dice on, on dark matter. It's too special. Yeah. Yeah. Are you, uh, are you writing anything now and will you be writing while you're show running? Yeah. I'm working on, um, the film adaptation for upgrade. Oh. Um, and, uh, taking notes and journaling my way into my next book, um, which I hope to start writing that this summer when, when all of the, the scripts are, are in for dark matter. Quick reminder, if you are looking to format your book, Atticus is a great tool. I've uh, moved all of my catalog into Atticus. It's cloud-based. Uh, Dave and the team is constantly upgrading it, um, and it's it's just a wonderful tool. So if you're looking for any kind of formatting, uh, make sure you check out Atticus. All right, the interview. Uh, I, I need to apologize, I think, to everyone, because when I talk to Blake, I'm just like full-on fanboy. I'm not thinking about you guys or what questions you want asked. I'm sorry. I can't help myself, but hopefully it turned out well. It was yeah. good. 
<laughs> is it wrong that I want to like sit in a room with him and Josh Mallerman and just smoke pot and just see where the conversation no, no, goes? No, exactly, right? <laughs> That's exactly my thought, right? Yeah, I mean, Blake is, is just a, such a fascinating guy. And just, a, you know, I mean, you could tell from the books, like where, where this guy's head's at. Um, he reminds me a lot of Michael Crichton um, in a lot of ways, um, just from the, the tech standpoint. But he's, he's kind of taken it to a, another level. Um, uh, Upgrade is a phenomenal book. Um, you know, it, it, it was one I, I might actually go back and revisit parts of it just because the, the way that it's written, you know, just the entire idea of it is just it's it's an incredible story. Um, it makes it makes you wonder about a lot of things. And I, and I kind of feel like in a lot of ways, the you know, like humans in general, like we are moving towards this kind of thing. You know, we're already creating, you know, prosthetics that are biometric where, you know, we're like we're doing all these different things that are basically confusing the, the machine world with the human world. Um, you know, the idea of actually programming genes and, and creating a physical upgrade on that level, I, I don't think it's necessarily science fiction. I think it's it's probably coming, um, you know, which is kind of partly why I think he set this book in the, the near future. Um, but a great, great story. Um, he also mentioned that he had 70,000 words on the on the book that he wrote and then shelved and then wrote the book. Like that's taking the whole pantsing thing to another level, right? <laughs> that is serious. Yeah. Yeah. It gave me some anxiety. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I just, I can't imagine, you know, particularly in his case, because, you know, he's on this, you know, traditional publisher roller coaster where he owes a book at a particular date, you know, and that whole machine is kind of expecting it on that date. And if he doesn't turn it in on that date, you know, it creates a, a whole slew of problems. So like to, to write 70,000 words and then shelf it and start over. Uh, I'm curious if he actually hit the target that he, he needed to. And I'm, I'm guessing he did. I mean, he's been fairly regular as far as his releases go. Yeah. <clears throat> this was a, uh... Blake is one. So Blake is probably, I think he's the first author I really discovered through Kindle and was like all in on. And I mean, Jay can tell you, cause you remember like I, 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 it was like th a while I kept saying, dude, you have to read Wayward Pines. You have to read Wayward Pines. And I was getting so angry cause I can't like, that's one of those books you can't tell people anything about because you'll spoil it. And um, so it's, you know, I'm, I get really excited when I tell like people haven't heard of him and I can tell them about him just cause his books are so cool. And you, he is, he, every book seems to have some really cool spin on it, you know, um, an upgrade was no exception. And so it was, it was really cool to hear him, uh, specifically for me, like talk about the whole research process. I thought that was really fascinating and how he had like basically a research assistant or expert with him, um, who, you know, read the book several times and stuff. I, I was going to ask you, JD, on that. Like he mentioned, I can't remember the name of the organization he mentioned, but there's an organization that basically hooks up like Hollywood people and creators with science, with science experts on different topics. And is that, I'm assuming like, and that's pretty common to, to be working with people like that uh, when you're at that level. Well, it's, it's available to pretty much any author. Um, you know, I, I know at ITW, we've got several FBI agents that you know, are, are available to you know, basically do fact checking for you, help you with your story. Um, you know, the, the FBI, CIA, NSA, all those different organizations all have somebody on staff that does nothing but that um, to help you get it right. And they'll, they'll answer anybody's question. It doesn't matter, you know, if you're Blake Crouch or you're, you're Joe Schmo and you're picking up the phone and asking them, they just want to make sure you get the facts right. Um, so, I, you know, I, I'm only familiar with this on the, you know, that level the law enforcement and, and, you know, the thriller world. Um, but I'm sure, you know, the scientific community, you know, has something similar too. they, they, they want to see this information get out there. Um, they want to see people excited about it, you know, 
there's people talking about it, even if it's on a fiction project, it draws attention to the real world, you know, which helps with financing and can move some of these projects forward. And it was really interesting this book because like I've, I've read all his books. So it was, um, it was interesting because it felt like, yeah, I mean, all his books have definitely had a very science element to it. You know, recursion and dark matter definitely had that, but this felt like it was like another level. Like there was just another level of science and technology in this book. Um, so it was definitely, it definitely felt like he really did his due diligence and really wanted to nail all the, all the science on this book. Yeah, there was a lot of fact checking involved for sure. Yeah. And I, the, the copy I have didn't have um, that section in it yet, but I'm, I'm curious to see how many pages worth of people were, were involved in just making sure that everything in this book was as accurate as it could be. You know, yeah, something I, would... wanted to, I wanted to ask you guys about, um, I, I don't know if, it, I'm not saying Blake is the only one that does this, but I, I think he's an outlier in, in the more sort of traditional thriller in that he seems to have a theme or an idea or, or a perspective that he wants to communicate through the story as opposed to say like the uh, more like this, like the James Bond Jack Reacher where it's, it's more sort of plot driven and, and, and it's uh, it's sort of an action based story. And, and Blake's always seems to have some type of, like I said, theme or, or message. I just wonder what your thoughts are on that or if I, if I'm not interpreting that correctly. I mean, I, I think you know, Blake had mentioned his his journal. Um, I, I think he has one liners for a lot of these. You know, he wanted to hit you know gene upgrades like that particular thing was was just a, a one liner in there, like an idea that he wanted to communicate, um, just like the multiverse was in that the other book that he wrote. You know, like he, he kind of hits a particular topic. Um, he is sending a, a moral message with this as as well. What what I find interesting is you know if you go back through his, his catalog, he was more you know on like a traditional thriller author path with the early stuff. Um, and now he's skewed very heavily sci-fi, um, but it's working for him. You know, like he basically started doing that because it was working for him. And now he's just, you know, kind of bet on it hands down. Like this is where I'm going. And, and, you know, he's just kind of jumped in with both feet, um, which is great. And it makes me wonder, like if you had written upgrades straight off the bat and, you know, started this, this author journey, like, you know, would it have worked at, at the get go? Um, or, you know, was that journey all part of the process? It's really, really hard to say, but, you know, his fans have obviously come along. He's, he's building his readership with each book. So it's working. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, going back to what you were asking, Jay, I mean, I definitely, I definitely can see that. I mean, his books do feel very thematic. Um, you even brought up my favorite quote in this book, you know, where uh, it, it was, we don't have a technology problem. We have a humanity problem. Is that what it was exactly? Something like, like that. Yeah. And it was uh, when I read that, I was like, oh man. And it, it to me, that line and, and you indirectly asked him, was that the theme you were looking at? And he kind of but it, to me, it totally felt like that. It really felt like he, that this book, the whole idea was like, was questioning the, um, the ethics and, um, the health around a lot of the things we're doing with technology and like, is, are the things we're doing with technology, um, healthy for us? And I, I was asking some really, really big questions, um, that, you know, we've, talked about pretty openly, especially around like social media and stuff. And then you take it to another level when you start looking at, you know, some of the stuff they're doing in genetics and all that and stuff with AI. And it's like, man, is this really a good idea? It's happening no matter we want it to or not. Like it's, there's nothing the three of us could do about it if we wanted to, but it's just raising those questions and approaching them in this way with this amazing, well-paced thriller with these great characters was just a really interesting way to do it. 
science fiction has been doing that for forever, right? You know, you yeah. go back to the 40s, 50s, uh, the early science fiction stuff, they were basically hinting at this is what could go wrong if, if we did ABC. Um, you know, so he's just kind of carrying that into the, the current world. Um, he's the showrunner on Dark Matter, um, which kind of surprised me. But, you know, it, again, it just kind of shows how he's he's evolved over time. You know, he basically on Wayward Pines, he was just a, a spectator, um, which is where, you know, a lot of the, the people in Hollywood try to keep you, you know, early on in your career when you're doing this sort of thing. But he's obviously, you know, taken some substantial notes. He's gotten to, to know a lot of these people. He's gotten to understand the process. Um, you know, he, he, you know, on good behavior, he, he fine-tuned that a little bit. But for them to, you know, allow him to be the, the showrunner on, on something like Dark Matter, for Sony, you know, that's a big deal. I think a lot of people don't quite understand what a showrunner is, but it's it's almost like the puppet master on the show. Like he's he's running, you know, the, the the entire production. It's it's like being the manager of the you know the the store. You know, like he's he's in charge of that. And like for them to to take that kind of leap of fate, um, you know, that that's huge. Well, and like whether he did this purposely or not, I don't know. But you could tell that dark matter is very personal to him. Like that that's a project that he really, really loves. And like, so the fact that he was able to get some Hollywood experience under his belt and like have something adapted and then be a little bit more involved, it's almost, it's almost like he set it up to where he made sure he was ready to take this position before he, with the right project. And like, this obviously is the right one. Um, so it'd be really interesting to see how that plays out. And I, what I really enjoyed hearing was that it really wasn't the right project until now, right? Like he talked about the, that's kind of what I was saying. Right? Yeah. And like, you know, yeah. he wasn't ready. The screenwriters weren't, they weren't, no one was feeling it. No one kind of nailed it. And, and this was years. Like, so I think sometimes we think like if we come out of the gate and something doesn't immediately click that we should abandon it or, there, or there's a problem. And sometimes the timing just isn't right. And, you know, for him, uh, years after that book published, I mean, he got, he got the deal before the book was, he was done writing the book and here years later, you know, he's going to be a showrunner on it. So I think it just goes to show that like sometimes the timing's off and you got to be patient and you got to just save those things and, and maybe revisit them every now and again. Well, you know, a lot of times you come out of the gate thinking, well, this is going to be a feature film. And then you start having those conversations. The more and more you talk to people, you know, in, in that world, you realize now maybe it's probably better as a series, um, you know, and it changes your perspective on it. And then you start having those conversations. Well, if it is a series, it could, you know, here's our episode arc. You know, this is what we're going to do. And like you get excited about that. And it's a very different animal than what the, the, the feature film was, which is a different animal from the book itself. And, you know, it's, it's just like when you're pantsing a novel, it just kind of takes a life of its own. You know, the, the way you're going to tell that story can, can do the same thing yeah i i really like um somewhat related to what you were just saying too like i really like this trend that's coming out where with, with the limited series thing to me that seems like kind of a happy medium between the movie and doing a full-length like multi-season television show um and so i hope that that continues too so kind of based off what you were just saying i think we all learned our lesson with lost you know like <laughs> yeah. they just they just strung that along as long as they possibly could and like if they would have come up with an ending you know they could have ended it three or four seasons in and it would probably been a fantastic story but they just they milked it yeah yeah and i mean going back to our stranger things conversation at the top it's cool to know those guys had a five season arc going in and that they're not going to try to extend it because the show is so popular and of course they can't because the kids are going to age out but um but yeah it's, it's it's cool to see that for sure so absolutely 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> well, uh, as always, uh, love having Blake on the show. Uh, hopefully, we'll get him back maybe for a little more time next time. Maybe maybe J.D. Barker or Parker can uh, negotiate that. We'll, we'll see. Uh, who's we up leave next both week? of us out of this. Yeah. <laughs> who's up next week, J.D.? Next week, we've got Vanessa Riley. She writes Regency romance and historical fiction with powerful persons of color. Um, she's got some incredibly strong female leads. Um, her latest novel is called Sister Mother Warrior, and it's out July 12th. Excellent. We'll be looking forward to that. Uh, don't forget, folks, if you are in the, uh, in, the, in the area, the Rocky Mountain Fiction Writers is hosting their Colorado Gold Writers Conference taking place September 9 to 11 in Denver. It draws writers from the Rocky Mountains and beyond. This year's event features keynotes Chuck Wendig and Catherine Center, as well as three days of programming in craft, marketing, and more by publishing professionals. Uh, lots of networking opportunities, a chance to pitch an agent in person. So get yourself over to the Colorado Gold Writers Conference to lift up and lift off your writing career. And you can register for that at rmfw.org conference 2022. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.